Well, maybe you're following the World Baseball Classic that's going on right now. In fact, Team USA is currently beating Cuba in uh, the semifinal round. In case that was a spoiler alert for any of you, I'm sorry, but it's not really a spoiler. Team USA should beat Cuba in the semifinal round to advance to the finals. But last night, they were playing, and they were down. And they were down late in the game. In fact, it was the eighth inning, and they were down two runs in the game to Venezuela. And things were not looking good for Team USA until they got the bases loaded in the top of the eighth inning. It's weird, though, right? Because, sidebar, this whole tournament is being played in, in the United States, and sometimes the United States is the away team, which, figure that one out for me. But anyways... They're top of the eighth inning. United States is up to bat. Bases are loaded. Trey Turner comes up to bat, former Dodger, now with the Phillies. And uh, he takes a changeup on an 0-2 count and, and deposits it deep into the outfield bleachers. And the United States, on a grand slam, takes a two-run lead in the game. And the stadium went crazy. But not only the stadium went crazy, all of these Major League Baseball players, like Mike Trout and Paul Goldschmidt and a bunch of other guys that you guys don't even know or care about, but they're, they're Major League Baseball players, and they're professional athletes, and they were like Little League kids. They were piling over the dugout. They were running to the, to, to the home plate, and they were waiting for Turner to get around, and they were just celebrating and going crazy with, with Turner. And I read an article about it this morning that talked about how unusual that is because a lot of times that will happen with uh, sports from in, in, in baseball when there's a walk-off home run hit, meaning the game's over at that point. But if the game's not over, typically in major leagues, the, the players don't pile out of the dugout and go up there. But they said this really shows how much this team cares, that it's a team sport, that they're playing for more than just themselves. And they interviewed some of the players after that game, and they said, man, I've one player in particular who was in the World Series in a Game 7 of a World Series that his team ended up winning even this guy said that game was a better atmosphere than game seven in a World Series that his team ended up winning. Why? Because there's an innocence about it and a purity about it because they're playing not for a contract because these guys aren't getting paid to play for Team USA. They're playing for their country. They're playing for something bigger than themselves. There are team sports and there are individual sports in life, right? Hockey, Team sport, baseball, team sport, basketball, team sport, tennis, individual sport most of the time. Pickleball, individual sport most of the time, right? In other words, the difference is the individuals are playing for the individual. The individual is, is focused on getting better at his skill, at his craft, so that it benefits himself. But an individual on a team is focused on getting better because it benefits the team. Y'all, Christianity is a team sport, not an individual sport. And all of y'all play a part and have a role in the team called Christianity, specifically in the team that is made up in this local church. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Christ is everything, and we want to desire him above all else. And then last week, we talked about having that zeal and that passion for him in, and having that evidence itself in our lives. And now, I want us to take that the, the next step to talk about how that should overflow into what it looks like to have a, a dynamic and vibrant team that is the local church and why your life matters for that. Take your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 down through chapter 2, verse 3. That's going to be our, our text tonight. Peter writes this, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere 
brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. What we find in this passage is that God is saving a people, not just a person. That yes, you have an individual walk with Christ, but that individual walk with Christ cannot be divorced from your place within the body of Christ. And it has a bearing on the overall health of the body of Christ. Your relationship with the Lord has great implications for your relationship with one another. And your relationship with one another has great implications for your relationship with the Lord. That's what Peter's saying in this passage. He begins and says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Having purified your souls. He's talking about growing in godliness. He's talking about what we might call sanctification, growing in in putting sin off and putting on the righteousness of Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. And he's saying that's going to have an impact in our lives. And he's really building off of some context that we don't have because we haven't been able to go through this as a series in 1 Peter. But back in chapter 1, verse 13, if you look up there, he says, you know what? We need to be preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, setting our hope on the revelation of Christ not being conformed then to the the passions of our former ignorance, but being holy in all of our conduct. And then that line that we've heard before, be holy for God is holy. Conduct yourselves then in fear during the time of your exile. So if you look at all of those commands, it's Peter saying, you need to live a godly life. You need to to live a life that is is Christ-like. You need to be growing in godliness. You need to be growing in 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 your fear of God. You need to be holy for God is holy. And then he gets to verse 22 and he says, okay, if that's happening, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, by pursuing all of these things, right? If, If this is going on and you're checking the box kind of in these areas, then he says this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, this, when we do this, overflows into a love for the the brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this room. And if there's not a love for other Christians when you're loving the Lord this way, then there's a short circuit somewhere in the equation. Jesus, how many times have I gone over this with you guys? It feels like a million times because it feels like I've told myself this a million times. But when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say, y'all? He said, love God. And then the second is what? Love others. That's kind of what we're talking about here. We can't say, in fact, the Bible even says that, right? Don't tell me you love God, John says, if you don't love your brothers. Don't tell me you love Jesus whom you don't see if you don't love the brothers whom you do see. And so there's this idea that our godliness has a direct impact on our fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Has a direct impact on the health of our church. See, having done all of these things will impact more than simply your individual relationship with God. Having purified, notice the language here, it's even more emphatic, having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. Did you catch that? One of the motivations, one of the reasons that we are pursuing godliness is to increase our affection and love for one another. 
your obedience to the truth, in other words, has a horizontal nature to it. It's not just about your vertical relationship, but it's also about your relationship with one another. You can't be fully obedient, as Peter has in mind here. You can't be fully pursuing godliness and holiness, as Peter is calling us to here, if you don't love one another. The text is clear. Part of God's purpose in sanctifying you is to produce in this room a community of loving believers. Point number one tonight is this. Recognize your holiness impacts your church. Recognize your holiness impacts your church. I played soccer in high school. And I like to tell people that I played JV for three years because my junior year I tore my hip flexor in in tryouts and that's why I couldn't play varsity, but I wasn't going to make varsity anyway. So I played soccer. It was three-year JV and I think I lettered my senior year as a varsity player, but by then who's going to get, nobody's going to get a letterman's jacket for your senior year soccer team. At least not when I went to a private school, I didn't. But I remember being mindful playing soccer that, man, I had teammates that were depending on me. And for those first three years, I remember thinking, man, if I'm not marking my man, then I'm letting my team down. If I don't hustle back on defense, then, man, I'm, I'm letting my team down. If I decide I don't want to play left mid anymore, I want to play goalie, and I just abandon my post and go over there, then I'm, I'm letting my team down. And I remember thinking to myself, man, there's, there's a weightiness here. I would get anxious before the game would start going, oh, man, I can't mess up. I don't want to let my team down. And then when my senior year came along and I was on varsity, it was like, dude, I got to warm this spot on the bench because somebody is going to need this warm spot when I get called to go in the game at some point during cleanup time. And so I was like, if I don't warm this spot well, I'm going to let my team down because they're going to have a cold bench. And so I need to warm it well. And I was really good at that part. But you guys get the point, right? I mean, if you've played a team sport, you understand that feeling. Other people are counting on you to do your part. Y'all, in the church, part of what that looks like for us is pursuing Christ-likeness and godliness. That you have a body of believers here that are counting on you to be pursuing Jesus. Because your relationship with Jesus individually impacts your church and the health of your church. It produces this, the, the brotherly affection, phileo, is the word there in the Greek where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which is anything but right now, but... It's this horizontal love for one another where we care about each other. And, and think about it. This isn't the only place we, we figured this out, right? How about the fruit of the Spirit? What are they? Yes. I love asking questions like that because it's the only time, it's the closest we get here to speaking in tongues. Just listening to you guys mumble out there. It's like, right? Somebody's going to go back and be like, Pastor PJ spoke in tongues. Whatever, I've got two more times here. So go for it. I, I, I think... I think I'll be able to survive and preach next week. I don't know, but I think so. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think through that list in your mind and consider how many of those have to do with your relationship with other people. The fruit of the Spirit is not an individualistic thing. In fact, you, I would go so far as to say you can't really demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit if you're not in community with other believers. The evidence of the Spirit working in our lives, so much of it takes place in the context of the church. And so your individual relationship with God impacts your church. Not just the fruit of the Spirit, but we talked about this passage last week, but let me just jog our minds again, our memories again. If you got your Bibles, flip back to Colossians chapter 3 again. 
We talked about this is what zeal looks like last week. But now let's consider it from the context of the same passage of how many of these commands are given within the context of community. And can we really obey what Paul's calling us to do here if we're not heavily involved in loving the church? Pick up in verse 12. Paul says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here it is, compassionate hearts, compassionate towards other people, right? Kindness. Kindness towards yourself or kindness towards other people. Humility. Meekness, patience. I don't think that God has in mind there that we're just impressed with how humble we are when we look in the mirror or how meek we we can be just in private or how patient we are with ourselves. I think God has in mind here that, that we're demonstrating those things in the context of community with other believers. In fact, then he goes on, he says here in verse 13, I know you, you have to be in the community to do this, bearing with one another. Bearing with, being patient with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then he goes on, he says, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Okay, he's talking to the the, the church here. Let the peace of Christ rule corporately in y'all's hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This thing called Christianity that we're doing, y'all, is not an individual pursuit. And your Christ-likeness, your godliness, or your lack thereof has a bearing on this church. It matters corporately. The more Christ-like you are, the more Christ-like your church will be. The less Christ-like you are, the less Christ-like your church will be. Your Christ-likeness has an inevitable impact on the unity and health of the body of believers that you call the church. But on top of this, Peter goes even further than this. Because he says, he doesn't just stop it at, for the, the, the brotherly love part. He, he goes on again and he says, now he says, love one another earnestly even from a pure heart. And here the word has changed. It's not phileo anymore. It's agape. And so it's not just this re- reciprocal brotherly love that we have where it's like, well, we like being around each other and we're friends. And so, yeah, we, we have this brotherly love with each other. Agape is an intentional love bent on someone else's good, whether they benefit you or not. Agape is that fatherly love that the father has for us, wherein he demonstrated that in that Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. In, in Paul, or not Paul, but, but Peter now, Paul would probably agree with Peter, I'm sure, but, but it's Peter who's writing this, and he says, look, that's the kind of love, not just the brotherly love, where it's like we all get together and get along together because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but now he's ratcheting the level up a little bit and saying, if you're in Christ, if you've purified yourself through the obedience to the Lord, there should be this agape kind of love for one another. This sacrificial love that's bent on the good of the other people, even if they don't benefit you. 
you are saved and placed into a local body of believers to love one another earnestly this way as you grow together as Christians. You can't do this if you're not in community. And if you're neglecting these things, y'all, you're hurting the body of Christ. You're hurting the bride of Christ. Noah threw a dodgeball at my wife earlier, and so I hit him with it. <laughs> if you come at my wife, I will come at you. Why don't we think that way about Jesus? Church is his bride. That's why the whole I love Jesus but not the church thing doesn't work. If you come up to me and you say, Pastor PJ, I think we're close, but I really can't stand your wife, guess what? We're not close and we have issues. So if people are going to stand up and say, well, I love Jesus but not the church, they're going to have a big problem when they stand before the judgment seat and hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because Jesus, Acts 20 says, died and shed his blood for the church, his bride. Part of our care for the bride of Christ is focusing in on our personal walk with Jesus and realizing that that impacts the church. That has bearing on the community of believers that we call the church. What should this love look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the love passage. You guys are probably familiar with it. You can turn there if you want. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. This is a passage that you've heard read at weddings or maybe your mom has some creepy needlepoint of it above the couch at your home or maybe it's like you're a 90s family and so there's like it's stenciled above the pantry because that's what we did in the 90s. It was like I'm going to put this Bible verse above where we get food because it's going to remind me that I need to live on the bread of God, right? I don't know why they did that. That's my best shot. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. But people did weird thing in the 90s. Don't stencil stuff on your walls. I mean, I guess scripture is a good thing to stencil on your walls, but all that so that I could get time to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, says this, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Okay, we read that at weddings. Guess what? It's not a wedding passage. Who's Paul writing to in 1 Corinthians? The, the what at Corinth? The church, right? The church at Corinth. So this is Paul saying, this is what the relationships within the church should look like. This kind of love should be happening here, y'all, in the bridge. And my question is, is it? This is what it looks like to love one another earnestly. And so as we read through that, right, again, I ask you, can you do any of that in isolation from other brothers and sisters in Christ? The answer is no, of course not. And so we need to be living this out. We need to be letting this show in how we interact with one another. A major part of our pursuit of holiness is this driven, active, intentional love for one another. Why? Because, again, God saved a people, not a person. And there's something about this people that Peter goes back to back in our passage, back over in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 23 through 25, because Peter's going to say something about this body of Christ and about why we need to focus so much on loving one another within the body of Christ, and, and that overflows from our godliness. Because why, Peter, why, why should we focus on this? Look at verse 23. Since, did you catch that word there? Since. He's explaining the reason. He's saying, why? Why should you do this since or because you have been born again? Okay? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 
So here's what Peter's done here. And listen, I love y'all's families. But Peter has just said, your flesh and blood family takes a backseat to the eternal family of the, of the bride of Christ. Because there are people within your flesh and blood family who you will not spend eternity with. You understand that? That there are people that you will live with far longer and get to know far better and love far more than some of your flesh and blood family if they're not in Christ. And that's his point here. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed. In other words, he's saying we're, we're not talking about the, the, the seed, you being born again physically into some physical family. He's saying, no, you've been born again of the imperishable word through the living and abiding word of God. And then he goes on, he says, for all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the grass. He's focusing in on this. He's doubling down. He's going, if, if, if your concern is just is, is the fleshly relationships that you have, it's like, dude, the, the, the flesh is here and gone. The grass withers, the flower falls. But hey, the word of the Lord and the, the, the family that it has birthed for you, he says, remains forever. And what is the word? The word is the good news. What, what's that word in the Greek? Anybody know? Euangelion. You know what else we translate that as? Rhymes with schmasbel, starts with a G. Come on now. Gospel. That's the gospel. The word is the gospel that was preached to you. So the gospel, you hear it, you receive it, you believe it. Boom, you're born into this forever family called the church. And Peter's saying, love one another in that context. That, that this is what, what really matters here. And, and, and we don't, again, have the context of the whole book. But, but y'all, Peter was writing to people in a tough spot. He's writing to Christians who are scattered, Christians who are facing persecution, Christians who are being tortured by Nero in Rome. And he's writing to these people going, hey, you know what? We need to love each other right now. You, you think that was a welcome message to them as they're in a jail cell waiting, perhaps going into the gladiator arena or being thrown to the lions? Go, man, I got people loving me to this level. Yeah, I think so. And I don't know what the future holds, but maybe we're gonna get there. Where for you to think about, oh man, I need, a, I need a family that's gonna love me like this. And you know what Jesus says about the end times, don't you? He says, parents are gonna deliver children. Children are gonna deliver parents. Brother's gonna turn on brother. Sister's gonna turn on sister. God is doing something, y'all, in the church where you don't have to worry about that. He's building a family here with eternal roots. Now, man, I pray that every single one of my biological family members that are in my house become part of this family. So I'm not saying you go out and hate your family or ne neglect your family or anything like that. I'm just saying we have to have this perspective to understand that until those knees bow and tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, this is the family you'll be spending eternity with, not them. And this family matters. And if this family matters, your holiness matters, which is the point that Peter's making here. Because the holiness that we pursue creates in us this desire to, to love one another, which benefits the body of Christ, our eternal family. You cannot separate your identity as a follower of Christ from your place within the bride of Christ. Those two things are inseparable. Because you've been born again 
through the living and abiding word of God that endures forever. But what should this love look like specifically? Well, Peter continues, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so put away, meaning take off. It's the language that has to do with taking off a, a robe, like taking off a jacket and, and getting rid of it. Put away from you all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Let's just stop there for a second. Put off, take off. Romans 13, 12 says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Colossians 3, 8 says, but now you must put them all away. Same concept, same word there. And he goes on and he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. So what are we supposed to, to put off back in our passage? Well, let's look at it a little bit closer. First off, he says, put off malice. Malice is, is a mean-spiritedness, a vicious disposition, wickedness, depravity. That's what we're supposed to put off. There's no place for that in the church. Deceit, un underhanded, cunning, something that, that you're looking to take advantage of someone else through not telling the truth. Hypocrisy. This is creating a public persona that is at odds with the private reality. Envy. Well, it's envy. Right? I mean, you get that, right? Pastor Mike literally wrote a book on it. Um, it's coming out soon. But he preached a series on it. Great series, by the way. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to the envy series that he preached. But this is that jealousy that, that somebody else has something that I don't have, and, I, and I'm coveting that. I want that. I, I have ill thoughts towards them because they have it and I don't. Slander. This is speaking ill of someone else. Defamation. I don't think we're breaking ground here to argue that in the context of loving one another earnestly, none of these things fit. Yes? We're tracking with that? But still, we have to guard our lives against these things because these things will creep in. It may not be that anybody is going to walk in here and start preaching to you a false gospel. I hope, I pray. But these things can creep in. And these things can take root in this group. And these things can do irreparable damage to the community that is the body of Christ. And so we have to guard against these things and fight against these things. Our second point tonight is this. Guard the integrity of your church through holiness. Guard the integrity of your church through holiness. This is kind of the negative side. We looked at the positive side in point number one, that, man, the, the more Christ-like you are, the more Christ-like your community is going to be. This is kind of the negative side, saying we need to watch against sin entering into our life because sin will invade and pervade our community and hurt the church. Have you ever started off the day with a stain on your shirt? That's why I wear, don't wear white shirts very often because I'm not good at not getting stains on my, myself. My, my wife, when we have breakfast, she always tells my kids, eat over your plate, eat over your plate. We say it all the time. And I know she's talking to me too. Um, <laughs> and I do most of the time, but sometimes I don't. But the worst is when, like, and it's happened, it doesn't happen often, but I'll, I'll be in my car on the way to the office, and it's like, you look good, you feel good, you feel good, you, you preach good, kind of like that, that mentality is in, in, in there, and God's like, okay, we're going to humble you. And you just hit a bump, and the coffee is like, boop and then it's on your lap or it's on your shirt, you're going, oh, come on. 
And then laziness kicks in because you're like, I'm not turning the car around and going back and changing out of this shirt. I'm just going to own it today. But then it's like all you can think about is that there's, there's this stain on your shirt. And sometimes, y'all, it's like a drip. It's like a single drip hits my shirt. And it's like I, I just I have conversations with people, and I feel like I have to apologize to them because I'm like, that's the only thing that they're looking at is this singular drip that's on the hem of my shirt. And it's, it's, it, my day's wasted because I've got this stain on my shirt. That's a glimpse inside the terrifying world of my, my mind. But my point is this, that tiny little stain can dominate everything else for the rest of the day. That tiny little stain can ruin things. That tiny little stain can cause me to, to all of a sudden think, I, I need to completely get rid of what I'm wearing and put on something different. Because I, I can't abide by that. It's ruining it. When we allow sin to creep into the church, guys, it's, it's like that. When we allow these things to creep into the, the community that we have here, that's what's happening. We've got this community, this, this clean slate, and all of a sudden now it's getting stained left and right. And it is the only thing that, that people will remember. Y'all, if we become a group marked by those things that were up there on that, that screen a second ago, nobody will walk in here and walk out of here thinking, man, the bridge, they, they really love Jesus there. They're going to walk in here, and all they're going to be able to think about is the stains. It's the only thing that they'll, they'll walk away with. And we cannot allow that. Your holy living is important to your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's re- important in turn for the relationship of you to your church. Let's drill down on a few of these things a little bit more just to make sure that we get it. Let's talk about the first one, malice. <coughs> I don't know what comes to mind when you think malice. Maybe this lady does. But what is malice? It's, it's so often the internal thoughts more than it is the external words that you say. It's things that you harbor in your mind against someone else in the room. Maybe the root of even some of these other sins on this list that we'll unpack here that Peter has listed for us. And it... it we might just write it off and think, well, it's no big deal because nobody else knows about it. And because it's just internal, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not going to ever act on this m- malicious thought I have about this person over here. So we write it off as not that big of a deal. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about murder and anger and why he equated the two of them? Why did he equate the two of them? Where does the problem begin? In the heart. So we've got to avoid malice. If you have malicious thoughts against someone else, you need to check yourself on that. If, there's, if the reason is because somebody has sinned against you, well, then you need to, to deal with that sin in a biblical way and go to that person. Not in anger and hatred and maliciousness, but you need to, to deal with that and not let it fester in your heart and create rot within you. Malice. Deceit. Lying to your brothers and sisters in Christ whether to gain something from them or to save face from them, for them. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So when you're in that accountability relationship and your accountability partner asks you how you've been doing with that sin, are you deceitful in how you respond? Or if somebody sits down with you and and opens up to you and shares their heart with you and asks you to pray for them, 
and you say, man, I'll be praying for you. Are you deceitful in saying that? Intending not to go on and, and pray for them, but just saying that so that they'll, they'll think, oh man, they, they're, they're an awesome person because they told me they'd be praying for me. Deceit can have no place in the group. Hypocrisy. Apparently that guy stopped crossing his fingers and grabbed a mask. These are totally separate Google searches. And then I was like, oh, cool. Another behind the back kind of a guy. But it's a mask. Why is it a mask? Because that's what the word hypocrite is. It's, it's, it comes from the, the theater in ancient Greece where they would wear masks. And the actors were referred to as hypocrites because they would put the mask on to play the role that they were playing when it wasn't really who they were. That's what hypocrisy is. It's keeping up appearances in, in front of a certain group while the rest of the time you live a totally different life. That can do damage to the bride of Christ. Easiest example of this, right, is driving around with a Compass Bible Church sticker on your car. Which I, I don't mean to boast, but I, I'm pretty sure that I'm the reason for a negative Yelp review on Yelp for Compass Bible Church right now. You can go on and you will find one where this guy is angry because Compass Bible Church drivers drive too slow. No lie. So here's the deal. I drive a hybrid Corolla and I'm cheap. And so I'll drive it on eco mode and I have this challenge to where I'm like, I don't want the engine to kick on. So I just let it cruise on battery power as long as it possibly can, which means when I'm accelerating from a, a stoplight, I'm not accelerating from anything. I'm like, I'm, I'm just, we're coasting. We're just, we're chilling. We're just crawling forward. And I was on the way home one day and there was a guy that was behind me that was just like, like trying to go around me. And then there was oncoming traffic. And I was like, look, God, God is trying to teach you something. Just stay back there and be patient. And I wasn't trying to make him mad. I was just driving my, my Corolla hybrid, trying to save money, right? I got five miles to feed at home. No lie. Like later that day, I jumped on Yelp because I was curious about what was going on. And, and I found a brand new fresh review that was like, I hate Cumbers Bible Church drivers. They're all slow and I'll never get the time back. Well, maybe there's other things that we do in our car with a Compass Bible Church sticker on the back that might be a little bit more hypocritical of who we are, right? Or wearing a t-shirt, or just because somebody knows that we're a believer, and then we go hang out with them and we don't act that way. Envy. That's a terrifying picture. I don't even know. I googled envy, and there was a lot of laptops that popped up, because apparently there's a laptop called the envy, but... And then there was this lady, and I was like, that's it. We're going to go with that one. <laughs> but it's the monster within us, right? I think that's what they're driving at there. I didn't take art, but I think I got that right. It's, it's jealousy of somebody else's promotion or success or relationship or health or balance or wealth, anything else, right? It's, it's just that here's the thing. The, the problem is you can't love someone and be envious of them at the same time. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, do not be envious. Because Christ was not. And then finally, slander. Did you see Noah throw that ball earlier? I did. No. Slander, right? Slander is, is tearing somebody else down with your words. And I think this is where, and, and let me speak to the guys for an, a minute, because maybe you're like, ah, oh, yeah, see, it's, it's a chick problem because there's girls up on the screen. Can I just suggest sometimes our joking crosses the line with that, that the sarcasm can cross the line with this as well? And be careful about our words. 
there's so many different elements that go into the health and unity of the church, but Peter is calling us to rid our lives of these things because of the damage that they can do to the body of Christ. This is not what loving each other looks like. These are threats to that. And, and this is for you guys because y'all in this room are the future of the church. And we have to be strong in these areas. Guard the integrity of your church through holiness. Finally, though, we have to ask ourselves, well, what's going to sustain all this? What's going to keep us going? What's going to guard us against these sins? What's going to fuel our earnest love for one another? These things can only be sustained through a lifeline to the Father. And Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Don't think milk is bad, like the writer of Hebrews he and Peter didn't really get together on this analogy, did they? Because the writer of Hebrews is like, dude, you guys are still on milk. You need to be moving past this. And Peter's like, no, long for the milk. And you're like, dude, guys, come on. Can we work this out? This is a good thing that Peter's commending. He's holding out the, the craving that is that of a newborn baby for milk, which, Lord willing, you guys will all get to experience the joyfulness of that someday where in the middle of the night at god-awful hours, the child wakes up and wants food, and you're going, we're all asleep. This, you're going to have to learn this lesson at some point. It's not natural to wake up at 3 a.m. and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm thirsty. I, I could use some milk at this point. But until they can figure that one out, they, they just do, and you have to feed them because it's the only way that you're going to get back to sleep is if you feed the child, and you need to feed the baby. I get that. Like The babies need food. they got to grow. <coughs> but Peter's point here is that that zeal that they have for the milk where that's all they can think about. And you can change their diaper, that's not going to help them. You can bounce them, that's not going to help them. Not bounce, but like bounce them. <laughs> you can rock them, that's not going to help them. Right? You can give them a pacifier, that's going to make them mad. There's one thing that will satisfy that baby, and that's milk. Peter's saying we have to have that passion for pure spiritual milk. What is the pure spiritual milk? Well, he's already answered the question for us. It's the word of God. It's a figure of speech to illustrate the passion and craving that we must have for the word of God. You may say, well, how do you know it's the word of God? Well, it, it fits the context because in verses 23 through 25, right before this, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the word of God. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So he's talking about the scriptures, but then beyond that, scripture was often and, and for a long time thought of as something that was nourishing. Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Word that comes from the mouth of God. So the word of God nourishes us. And then beyond that, there's this concept of longing that shows up elsewhere in the scriptures. Psalm 131 talks about longing for the word of God desiring the word of God. In fact, Psalm 119 is replete with examples of longing and hungering for the word of God. And so it makes sense that Peter here is saying, we need to be craving something, craving the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation. So by it, this is how we're going to do all this. We're going to fuel all these things. Through what? Through the word of God. Here's the thing, y'all. You guys were all, you, you, you've had this situation, right, where you've met one of your parents' friends, and it's been like, 
15 years since they saw you. And they're like, last time I saw you, you were this high. And you're like, yeah, I was three. Like it's been 15 years. I, that happens. People grow. If I was still as tall, like my parents call the Guinness Book of World Records. We're getting me in there because it's really short. What is going on? I have no idea. My point is this. We grow, right? Human beings grow. That's what happens naturally. You, you didn't have to put a whole lot of effort into physical maturity. Emotional maturity? Some of y'all needed to put a lot more effort into emotional maturity than your physical maturity. But physical, matur- physical maturity is going to happen. Your bones are going to grow and your body's going to grow up. That's not how spiritual maturity works. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen naturally. If you want to grow in godliness, you have to pursue it with an active pursuit. It's got to be cultivated. And the only way it can be cultivated is through a relationship with the Lord fueled by his word. Our final point tonight is this. Fuel your holiness through devotion to the word. Fuel this holiness that we've been talking about tonight that is so imperative to our church through our devotion to the word. I remember taking Luke to Disneyland and he wanted to ride on a roller coaster that his siblings were going to get to ride on and he was like a half inch too short. And it was crushing for him. Get ready for that as a parent, by the way. They don't prepare you for that. Where your kid's in tears and you're left there going, dude, I I can't make you an inch and a half taller than you are right now. But Luke left that and he was like, I need to grow. He's he's like, what do I need to do? How do I grow? He's asking his older brother who was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because now I get to just tell him whatever I want to tell him. If we hadn't intervened, Luke would have been like believing in gravity boots and hanging from his closet bar upside down and trying to stretch himself out. And, but he just wanted to be, he so desperately wanted to be bigger. He so desperately wanted to grow. Do you guys want to grow like that spiritually? Do you want to grow in holiness? Increase your intake of the word. Scripture. Do you want to grow in your love for others? Increase your intake of the word. Do you want to grow in your care for the church? Increase your intake of the word. Do you want to see broken relationships restored? Maybe some of those are in this room tonight. Increase your intake of the word. Do you want to be more of an encourager to your friends? Increase your intake of the word. Do you want to see more prayer in your life? Increase the intake of the word. Do you want to see less sin in your life? Increase your intake of the word. Your progress as a Christian will grow in direct proportion to your relationship and devotion to the Word of God. If you are not anchored to the Word, if you are not longing for the Word, craving the Word, like a newborn infant craves spiritual milk, and you are spiritually stunted, I can tell you why. And I can also tell you this, if you are not willing to develop a taste for the Word of God, you will never grow beyond where you are right now. If you are not willing to do the hard work to increase the intake of the scriptures in your life, then you will never get beyond where you are right now. What does that look like? How do I do that? Well, 
we have the, the daily Bible reading program. That's, that's kind of the, the, the basement entry level here. So do that. But then look for other opportunities. Scripture memory. Remember we challenge you guys to, to memorize the book of Philippians. You guys can keep going. Keep internalizing the word of God. That's a way to, to increase your intake of the word. Listen to the word of God. There's a, a Bible app out there called Dwell Bible Audio app or Dwell Bible Audio, Audio Bible Dwell. Yeah, Dwell. Just look up Dwell. It'll be there. That, that just has really well done, beautiful sets of reading of the, the scriptures. They've got the ESV. They've got, you can listen to like Rain behind it or like Enya kind of soft music behind it if you're listening to the Psalms or whatever. You guys don't know who Enya is. Never mind. Um, increase your intake of the word. That's my point. It, Pastor PJ, is this a point all about reading the Bible more? Yes. Yes, it is. Well, that seems kind of cliche. Great. It's true though, right? There will never be a time where you don't need to hear, read the Bible more. Ever. And I say that to myself too. But here's what's going to be the difference between those of you that walk away from this sermon and go, okay, fine, whatever. There's another sermon on reading the Bible more. And those of you that walk away from this sermon going, man, I, I can't, I, I, he's right. I need to get in the Bible more. I'm going to get in the Bible more. And it's verse three. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. What fuels your desire for the word? If it's just simply kind of like this momentum of like, oh man, he's right. I gotta, I gotta be more holy. Oh, I'm gonna grip my teeth and grit and bear it and pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, yes, great. How long is that gonna last? Holiness is hard and sin is fun. So if all you're trusting in is your your, your, your passion right now where you're at to, and, and the, the little bit of conviction that maybe you have right now to go, he's right, man, I gotta start taking this seriously. I'm gonna just grit my teeth and just be better. It's gonna peter out, no pun intended. You have to have something more than that. Maybe it's, I love my church and this message has been about how my holiness impacts my church. So because I love my church so much, I'm gonna focus and double down more on, on being more godly, being more holy. Okay, great. How long is that going to last? And what about when someone disappoints you within the church? Or what about when you disagree with the leadership in the church? What's going to sustain your love for God at that point? Feeling whatever it was, if it's not this, verse 3, it must be because you love him and you know that he is good. What's going to drive all of this that I've been preaching about tonight is your experience of the goodness of God. And if you have not experienced that, and that begins at the cross, understanding the goodness that a, a holy, perfect God made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin through the cross of Christ, if you have not experienced the goodness of God, and that is not why you want all of this, you will never, ever, ever last. Your momentum and drive that you might feel right now and your excitement will fade out if it's not sustained by the fuel of a passion for Jesus. A commitment to the Lord that produces a devotion to his word that fuels our pursuit of holiness will produce a community of believers who love each other this way and love each other well. Jesus died for a people, not a person. And as a result, Christianity, this thing that all of us are doing, is a team sport not an individual sport. 
All of us have a part to play in that. And that part to play ultimately has to come back to, albeit our individual walk with Christ, which has to be anchored to the word of God, fueled by a relationship with him through the experience of his goodness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the church. We thank you for saving us into a community and not saving us to just be by ourselves and individuals to try to figure out how to make this life work. So God, we thank you so much for for this place and these people in this room. I'm grateful for this ministry. I pray that you would increase the the Christ-likeness of this group, that you would increase the love for one another that's demonstrated in this group, that that all of that would come as, as the students dive deeper in your word and crave more of your word because of their experience with you as their God. And so God, do great things, we pray, towards this end. In Jesus' name, amen.